Welcome to the Learning Project Podcast. This show features conversations with education innovators from across the world. It's hosted by a group of friends who met at the Harvard Graduate School of Education during the pandemic. And it's based on the premise that new technologies combined with insights from learning science have the potential to make schooling and learning activities better than they've ever been. I'm Fenton Hughes. I'm Glenn Landsman. And, and we're excited yeah. to be here today with Matthew Henshaw, who is a serial edtech entrepreneur. Matthew's the co-founder of SkillUp, which was acquired in 2020. He's also founded Lesson Space, Code for Kids, and Room.sh, which he still runs, all three of those today. So looking at LinkedIn, I can see that Matthew has like four full-time jobs, which is impressive. Matthew, thanks so much for being willing to share your time with us today. Yes, Fenton, Gleb, thanks so much for having me. And hi to your yeah. audience. When we talked before the call, Matthew, you mentioned that when you first started as a founder, you had a few, I think you mentioned three unsuccessful ventures before your first successful experience. And I wondered if you could give us a little bit of context on your first three startups and what did you learn from that and how did those experiences affect the businesses you run today? Hmm. Yes, that's now 2014, 2015. So a lot has happened since then. I actually had started these kind of three edtech businesses right out of university. It's a very popular field to go into in edtech. And the reason for that is because education is technically all we've known for 20 years. And then all of a sudden you come out of university and you think, oh, I wonder what it is that I want to do. And you start something in edtech. And the first three ventures I started were all very kind of what I look back now is kind of amateurish and not kind of fully committed. So I was either starting something by myself for, for two of them or something with one friend for another, but I was never full time. I was doing some my own things in the background. They were all born out of problems I kind of saw in the workplace where it was a learning management system. Maybe it was a, uh, in a poorer community trying to create a maths tool for them. And the big learnings I got there, I think in education, there were maybe two. And, and the main learning, one was from an education startup perspective and one was from a founder perspective. The founder one is age-old advice, so I'll, I'll share that first. It's, it's much easier to work with a, with a team. You want to have a founding team. Going at this by yourself is the, you know, the saying, uh, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. I think that was truth. And I think the second thing in education that happens is that I think we kind of come out of education and you want to start an edtech startup that has makes a lot of meaning, has a lot of impact. And there's, you know, of course, education needs to have impact. That's kind of why we all do it. But I think sometimes we totally forget that it also has to be a business that makes money. And I was very focused on having this kind of impact, doing something really meaningful. And I never looked at the unit economics hard enough. And I think in education, it's so important, like the number one rule, if you're gonna start an education startup, make sure you make money first, make a difference second. And, and that might be a bit controversial, but if you want to start a business, you have to make money first. And, and really, if somebody is willing to pay you for your services, it's very likely that you are making a difference, a positive difference in their life just by the fact that they're paying you. I think things like grant funding and uh, NGOs, they're all good and they definitely have their place in society, but you don't want to get too reliant on that to fund the growth of your business if that's what you're after. So the kind of big learning there was education, make sure you're making money first, make an impact second. I got that wrong three times. <laughs> Maybe at this point we could talk a little bit about 
the two main businesses you're running today. Matthew, could you tell us about Lesson Space and Code for Kids and how they came about? And also, how do they relate to each other? How, how are you finding time to do both of these? Maybe it's worth sharing a little bit about how these two businesses start and, and why it's the way it is now. And, and kind of my advice to any founder is don't start two businesses at once, rather do one. That's not what we're doing. And you know that happened not by choice, but more by necessity. So we, were, we had a tutoring company called Skill Up Tutors, which was a way for, it was a tutor marketplace, B2C, like Airbnb for tutors, if you like. That was the business we sold last year. That was a very difficult business to build. And it made a lot of sense for the acquirer to buy that business based on their unit economics. They had a much bigger access to audience, much bigger lifetime value. But we were trying to create a way for our tutors to have online lessons. And we were using some off-the-shelf software. And that software started failing us, or failing our tutors at least. It wasn't working, and they kept reverting to Zoom and Skype and back in the day. So we decided, because we were a team of engineers, decided to build our own online Zoom for education, if you like. That, that's kind of how Lesson Space was born, because the skill up was, was difficult. So we decided to start kind of trying this new software as our unique selling point. And we triggered a Google alert in 2017. Could have even been 2016. And that got us three customers. They all contacted us, two in America, one in Canada. And those are still our customers today. And we just realized, oh, shucks, we could just sell software as a service. Uh, it's kind of something we really enjoy. We don't have to manage the tutors as much. So that's lesson space. It's software as a service. It's uh, Zoom for education. It was very fortunate to grow quite a lot during the pandemic. We're very lucky. Luck plays a big part. And uh, yeah, so that's how that started. But it started because we were kind of at a loss with SkillUp. And at the same time, while that was happening, I was, I'd been teaching my niece to code. She was 10 years old at the time. And by the time my niece was 12 years old, she could pass an entrance exam as a junior software engineer for a company that required a computer science degree. And she's not, you know, going to become an engineer. She's not the top of her class. She just was like, I was just teaching her basic things for two years. And this kind of proved to me that there was this massive gap between what was happening in the world and what was happening in the classroom. So we kind of heard that their school didn't have a computer teacher anymore. So I went to say, can we teach your kids to code? Then another school said, hey, could you teach our kids to code? And that's kind of how Code for Kids started. So both of those products, companies kind of happened in parallel. And they both happened because customers asked us for it. And, they, and, and then once they asked us for it, we were like, oh, that makes sense. So it was, I wish I could say we knew what we were doing. We had no idea. So these two businesses, Lesson Space and Code for Kids, how do we run them both at the same time? Firstly, with a lot of difficulty, but secondly, it's definitely for us now a net positive. And the reason for that is the one advantage we have is we don't look at a business in isolation anymore. You really get the chance of looking at a business like a machine relative to one another. So you can say, oh, wow, that's working at Code for Kids. I wonder why that doesn't work at Lesson Space, that sales tactic or that marketing tool or that product kind of methodology. And then you can say, sure, but that's really working well at Lesson Space. Could we try and apply that for Code for Kids? Hey, we should get the sales team at each of these companies to swap notes. Why don't we get the curriculum designer and the teacher support from Code for Kids to have a, have a discussion? And so from that perspective, running the two companies has been very, very beneficial, but it isn't what I would suggest. We're learning twice as fast, I suppose. <laughs> All right. So which of your two companies, Matthew, would you say you invest more time in and why? That definitely varies based on kind of the needs 
aspects of the business or my position. There's only really two of us who are spending time across both companies. Everyone else is very focused on their own business. We might, for example, we're doing a massive overhaul of our lesson space outbound marketing tool. And the whole idea of this tool is to also then use it to code for kids. So we are doing this a huge amount of work there right now at lesson space. And that's going very well, taking a lot of my time. And when that gets done, it will transfer across to Code for Kids, and that will also take some of my time, but less. At the same time, Code for Kids is doing a big, a big revamp on a lot of the courses. So where am I spending more of my time? Lesson Space is bringing in about 70% of our revenue, where Code for Kids is bringing about 30%. So I potentially am spending probably a similar kind of split amongst, but that definitely ebbs and flows, but I'd like to hope the average was, was close to that. Could you tell us a little bit more, Matthew, about the Code for Kids product? What is it you're selling and, and how do you, do, do you arrive at that product? Because it sounds like you started with a personal experience with your niece, but you know now you're supporting students in schools across South Africa, and I would love to understand more about the journey to the product you yeah. offer today. That's cool. Like Code for Kids really excites me. I love lesson space. I love what we're doing. It's very exciting to see millions of lessons happening every every month on the platform and know that you're having a positive impact on everyone, but you're kind of a little bit disconnected because it's really just a metric on a dashboard. And you hear customer feedback, but you don't really control what's happening in the classroom. You're just building a tool that ultimately the best lesson space tool is the one you don't even know kind of exists and you know that's kind of the goal but code for kids on the other hand it's something that has a very tangible impact it's really great to speak with our teacher support team and and hear what the teachers are doing and seeing the videos they're posting on online so it's a hugely exciting product that what the product is doing it is trying to bridge the gap from game-based or block-based coding to real-world coding so we're really focusing on your middle school your age 8 to 15 years old now, what has happened over the years, it's really easy just to make games for kids. So a lot of these tools are games. And yes, the games are valuable. They have their place to play. Very gamified kind of ways to teach computational thinking, digital citizenship, these things which are really valuable. But the reality is, is if you want to do coding one day and be confident to try coding, you need to be able to see real code and not, not freak out by it. So we have an eight-year-old on day one, they make a website with HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And we are bridging that gap from the blocks to the real world. And, and you know, we have 40,000, 50,000 kids doing it every, every week. So they can do it. You know, we've proven that these great falls can do it, and they're making these crazy websites. And the, the purpose of Code for Kids is to bridge that gap from game to real. And at the end, we're not trying to make computer engineers. We're trying to make students who are confident to try coding in the future. So it's not designed just for the coding club. It's not designed just for the people with the coding acumen. It's designed for every single student, no matter their, their strength or their acumen for coding, to be able to say, hey, I could try coding in the future because I've actually done real coding. It's difficult to get that when you've just been playing games. And I'm being a bit derogatory saying games, but what I mean by that is like very, very disconnected from actual coding, trying to like soften the edges where you don't really need to for coding. So yeah, that's what we're doing with Code for Kids, and we do it through a number of ways, building websites, building apps, programming drones, all done online. You know, it's $10 per student per year. There's no devices you need, you just need a computer and have a huge amount of training for teachers. You're providing the teacher training, essentially a curriculum guide for teachers. Can you tell us a little bit more about yeah. what that looks like? So exactly right, That we, we, we offer the tool, so the, the curriculum and the tool. So the teacher can say to the students, hey, come on to Code for Kids and start doing your lessons. 
but we also provide what we call just-in-time training. So we say to the teachers, if you ever bought a textbook, the textbook provider will come and drop a textbook at your school and then they leave. And that's not very useful, right? So what we're saying is we have a textbook that's always there. So we don't necessarily need the teachers to take a whole day of school to get trained, but we know that if they had their first lesson and they did it in a weird way, our teachers will jump and say, hey, we noticed you taught that in a strange way. Can we train, train a little bit different? Can we understand how you taught that? We call it just-in-time training. So our first value at Code for Kids is teacher first. It's all about the teacher. We focus fully on that teacher and train the teacher to teach coding, and then we give them the tools they need to teach it. Most of our teachers have no coding background, so it's very important for us that we can make a teacher confident to be able to teach coding. You know, when, when somebody starts talking about coding for kids, I think the word that immediately comes to mind is Scratch. So Code for Kids is different from Scratch because it's more realistic, more real world, so to speak. Plus, it gives teachers more support, and so they, they get more training. Is that correct, or is there more to it? That's exactly correct. Like, there's four core pillars in which Code for Kids exists. Number one is teacher first. We focus fully on the teacher. Scratch, yes, the teacher needs to be focused on, but the teacher isn't the center focus. It's kind of gamified that the kid can go through it. Number two, it's all about building confidence in students. Now, Scratch is very engaging. The students are loving it. They're playing the game, but it's not necessarily building a confidence that can be easily transferable to go into something like look at real code. The third thing is real code, real, real content. So what we're doing is we're teaching HTML, CSS, JavaScript, Python, and we're doing it in a real way. So for example, the schools want to learn about drones. So we partnered with a company that is the best in the world at taking a drone and scanning crops. So they scan uh, orchids and vineyards and, and they, with these scans, they can pick up diseases in, in these plants or they pick up yields. They can do these amazing things. And these are some of the best engineers in the world. So we went and formed those engineers in some way that, and so that they can explain what they do to an eight-year-old. And then we said to the students, here's your drone virtually that you need to program and scan trees. And at first lesson, we're going to go with blocking. We're going to go move forward, scan, move forward. The very next task is now do that in Python because it's not difficult. You just try to move forward, scan, move forward. But now Scratch is totally avoiding that. So we're going immediately and saying, well, you can't do the same thing in Python. And then we're going to go to Blockly again, then we're going to do it again in Python. We're doing the exact same thing. Just say, like, that's Python. And then we get more and more Python. And then the last thing is begin with the end of mind, the last kind of foundation. And what that means is there's this whole idea of, like, if you go and learn coding, you need to learn, like, hello world. And you need to kind of go on to Code Academy and start, this is a header, this is a paragraph. We don't believe that. We believe that the best way to learn is like pull something apart and put it back together. Like you don't learn about an engine by starting with thermodynamics. You kind of open the bonnet of a car and start like tinkering. So we start with the end. We start with a website that's fully working. And then we say to the students like pull things apart, break things, make it your own. And that's kind of the four principles of Code for Kids. And that's where we're trying to do it differently. And we do believe Scratch is very valuable in the younger years, but we try to bridge the gap from Scratch to kind of computer science. Yeah, if I had to summarize, I would say it sounds like Scratch is that block-based language is, is really great for engagement and really great for allowing kids to sort of learn to think computationally without even maybe even knowing that they're that they're learning some some of those skills. But where you guys are focused is okay, let's make that applied and let's help the teacher be able, a teacher who doesn't know how to code, let's help the teacher step in and be able to provide some scaffolded activities to students 
that enable them to actually get into real code and make mm -hmm. real things and feel like they could do programming again. Maybe in 10 years, if the opportunity comes up, they would be like open to it, or at least not as intimidated by it as most of us are. That's exactly right. There's like, yeah, there's so many stories we have of like students we've heard of who've, who've just dived into it. And that's awesome. That's excites us. Like students are seeing, oh my word, this is my website. You know, we had a, a school make a cake, a cake sale and all of a sudden the students were selling the things on their website and the school got a bit annoyed and they're like, well, we said, okay, of course you must block this and stop them, you know, selling actual stuff on their website. But the reality is we said to the school, you've just created 10 year olds that are entrepreneurs. <laughs> like, that's like kind of the purpose of school and you did it in age 10, you know? And so we said like, there's a way you can like use this as an opportunity, not as a, not as a kind of problem. As you look at Code for Kids, you said you have, was it 50,000 students in South Africa using it's the platform today? It's actually all over today? the world, about 70-80% of our customers in South Africa. We, we have quite a footprint in New Zealand, in the UK, okay. and in North America. So I'm curious what some of the biggest challenges that you're seeing in terms of things that either teachers are dealing with or students or schools in adopting and getting value out of the experience. Mm, that's a great question because that's what I'm spending most of my time thinking about at the moment. What is the biggest challenge to growth or what is the biggest challenge for us using Code for Kids everywhere? It's different in different countries. In South Africa, schools need a kind of one-stop shop that can tick every box. But the beauty is here, the teachers have a lot of, I don't want to say freedom, but a lot of like, they've been given a lot of the kind of, they're encouraged to try new things, I think. So the teachers are very willing to try something and see how it goes. In the UK, we found that, and that's quite similar in New Zealand. We found the same thing in New Zealand happen. In the UK, we find that teachers are a lot more inundated by a lot of tools. And that's because the, the UK education system is substantially more advanced than really anywhere in the world. So these teachers are having to, you know, before they can even look at a product, it has to tick a lot of the boxes. And for every one company that's trying to sell the product to them, there's nine that are giving it to them for free. So you really got to differentiate yourself in some unique way. And those free products don't mean that they are not as good. Some of them are brilliant because they're very well funded by non-government organizations, you know? So, so the biggest challenge in getting a school in like the UK to adopt it, I suppose, is can we show them that this is really going to ignite, like ignite something in the students that no other program is going to do? This is going to impress your parents. This is really going to make your students like dive into it in a different way. In the US, our biggest problem is getting to the right people. It's far different. We can't really go direct to school. We have to go to districts, have their own agendas and their own needs and their own that kind of criteria in which they're selecting. So it's tough. It's tough in the Northern Hemisphere, we've found in the first world country, or specifically in the UK and the US for those reasons. What it sounds like is that the relationship between the teacher and the student is a little different in Code for Kids than it is in a mm. normal classroom, right? Where the teacher is sort of like, if I think about the traditional school room, the teacher is sort of the dispenser of content and the, the kids are sort of the, the memorizers of content. I mean, that's a very, that's a little bit of a harsh caricature, but would you say that that relationship is different in a Code for Kids mm. experience? Or how does Code for Kids yeah. affect that? Teacher, yeah, I, I love the question because it's exactly why we started the company. We kind of, I sat with my co-founders was like, guys, what lesson do we wish we had at school? Like what was the, 
what if we could make a whole lesson, what would it look like? And that's how we started designing Code for Kids. And so one of the examples, very practically, is that these classes aren't meant to be the students putting their earphones on and just disappearing into content. Earphones are off and there is discussion. So for example, they can all help one another, but they help with their mouth, but not with the mouse. So no student can do it for the other student, but they help they help verbally. We have we equip our teachers, you know, the best teachers, we do a lot of lesson observations where we're going and spending time in the classroom and understanding what's working. But lots of we have we train our teachers in something we call the three step problem solving approach. And the three step problem solving approach says, Okay, the student puts up their hand and says, Sir, I don't know what to do. Step one, has the student tried? That's all the teacher has to do. Have you tried? Show me where you've tried. The beauty of our coding is you can break it a hundred times, it's encouraged. And reset it and re-go and try again. Yes, the students tried, they still can't do it. Cool. Step two, have you asked your neighbor? And your neighbor can answer with their mouth, but not with the mouse, right? So this is where you get the strongest students in the class who are typically not always the most popular in other classes. They are becoming the heroes in this class. They are helping out all the other students. And because you learn best when you teach, everyone knows that, yet we don't apply that into our classroom. You know, that's when you learn. And then the third thing, if the students still somehow don't know it, the teacher always answers Socratically with the question. How, how, what about this? What about that? Have you tried that? So the best teachers that we observe are the ones who never give the answer. Sometimes when a teacher actually has a strong coding background, they sort of try and teach the students to code. But we actually need the, to, the teacher to teach the students to discover coding without actually giving any kind of the answers away. That's fascinating because it sounds like what a lot of people would say is a weakness, the fact that the teachers themselves are not programmers, probably, is is a little bit of a strength in the, in the fact that it enables the classroom to, to like rise up and, and the students to teach each other and learn how to like troubleshoot because that's one of the main things you do as a programmer, I guess, is mm. you're going to Stack Overflow, you're finding answers to your own questions. That's a great way to put it, Fenton. Yeah. That is that. really cool. The weak, what we co what considered a weakness is actually a strength. Yeah. Yes. Good. So one of one of my professors and and Fenton's professors at university, he did say one thing: if you've come to education to earn money, it's not too late for you to rethink this. It's it's time for you to find <laughs> something else. So yeah. I would like to know, Matthew, how successful is well are your both businesses? Are they earning money? And what is the business model for each one? Mm, it's, a, it's a great comment and he's not wrong, but I think there's more to it than that. And like, there's like, so we have values at our company and one of them is, is the value of trying to make people make money. And it sounds a bit ridiculous, make people make money. But a very practical example of that is, what is the like purpose of school? What is the purpose of university? You've heard of like Lambda School. I love the model. You know, it's obviously executed in a, a hundred different ways, but the, the fundamental principles of the model is education is free. And when you start earning a job, we're going to get money based on the amount of money you've just earned at the job. So what you've just done is you've aligned the values with your customer. And every person, if I had education, it's 99% of the time, it's going to be because to make money. I want to increase my salary. I want to start a business. I want to make money. Now, I think... The problem is when your education isn't making money, it's actually not adding value in some way. And that's the kind of problem we found. We were trying to make a difference without adding value, without making money, and it, it never worked. Now, there's not to say there's not great free tools out there, but at Lesson Space, as an example, you ask how we make money. For every 
an hour that somebody does an online online tutoring for every hour there's more than one person on the lesson we build that person for an hourly rate so if you have no lessons you make no money you pay no money but if you have more lessons you pay us more money now zoom for example a competitor of ours if you like or an alternative that a lot of customers use they have a monthly set fee which means that the more meetings you have on zoom the less money zoom makes because zoom is paying for bandwidth they are actually incentivized for you to pay for zoom but never use zoom now we have the complete opposite we are incentivized for customers to use our product so our team our team of success from lesson space will go to a customer and say how can we grow your business how can we have more lessons how can you have more lessons because every time you have a lesson you're making money and a general rule for this is that for if, if our company was making a million dollars, it means our customers making a hundred million dollars. So the people are making a hundred million dollars our, on our product for every one million dollars we make. That's just you know a rough estimate. It, 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 it's actually probably pretty accurate. And, and that's a nice way to think about it. And I think with Code for Kids, the same thing. It's like, we, if we can show a teacher, look, look at like how your students are gonna react when they see this, when they start working on this. And this kind of light bulb moment goes off in students when they're like, oh my word, I've just created something that has access to the world. <laughs> right? I've just created something that can be used by the world. You can't do that with Scratch, as an example. With, with Code for Kids, you can. You can do, make something that can be consumed by the world. And that is the future. That is how you make money, ultimately. So I think, yeah, education, that's definitely true. It's difficult to make money. But I think it's if you can align your incentives or your, what, when your customer wins, and how do they win making money? If you can win when they win, you, you will be fine. So that would kind of be my encouragement. Like, why should somebody pay for this product? It's difficult to find in education. I love that the concept of aligning your incentives with the good incentives of your, of your partners and customers so that you all win together. Mm -hmm. It seems like a much more virtuous business model than, than we often see where, you know, like often gyms, right? They want you to subscribe to the gym membership, but they don't really mm. want you to go. At least they're all not the same day because they don't even have mm. the capacity for it. But I would love to ask you about the diverse skill sets that you bring together because, you know, you've done this a couple times, or a few times now, where you've founded an education-related business. And it sounds like you've always done so with a team. And what I'd like to ask is if, if you were going to do that again, in a space targeting schools again as you've done with code for kids who would you have on that team or who would you make sure is included in in the conversation yeah the simple answer is teachers i mean i think specifically with selling to schools you want you want to have teachers on your team and then some good sales people people who know how to sell to teachers i think um and then yeah i suppose if there's three cogs we we talk about cogs like gears in a, a machine it is it is the teachers who can support the teachers, the salespeople who get to them, and the product builders who, who make the product. It's simple, simple as that. And they all need to be balanced in, well, in a machine, in cogs. Like, the gears all need to work together. But if, you, if you're selling to a school, you need to understand, maybe even a school bursary provider, you're a school bursar, like somebody who is the accountant at a school. You want to understand, when you're selling to a school, like, we think about, like budget flow budget flow is an extremely important thing to think about in any industry and what i mean by that is that 
when we used to sell code for kids to schools, we would say, hey, would you buy our software? And the schools would say, sorry, we don't buy software. So we said, oh, okay, would you buy our online textbook? And our online textbook is 10 to $20 per student per year, and the school's like, oh, terrific, we buy textbooks. There's a line item on the budget that says textbook. So we haven't created a new budget item. We have simply diverted budget to our product. We've even been asked for like our ISBN numbers before. And I think when you're selling to a school, you need people who have an acute understanding of that. So how does budget flow through a school? And then why should it flow to you? How do you divert budget to your product? That would be kind of a simple answer. Matthew, can you tell us a bit more about money first and difference second? And also, if there is any other advice you can give to those who want to start their businesses just because they have so much passion in them. I think that's so like two different questions, yeah. essentially. Yeah. Yeah. So the simple answer would be make money. <laughs> I know it sounds so ridiculous, but like if there's just one thing to like take away, it's, it's can you see the path to profitability and can you achieve that path quickly? And, and, and once you see that path, achieve it, and that's the only thing you should be doing. So t I also would say that like B2C is really difficult as a first-time entrepreneur. So our first business was B2C. Um, the ones before that were B2C. One was B2B, but it was a bad product. You know, I think B2C is really tough first-time business, but it's always the one we kind of think about doing because, again, if you're a first-time founder, you've always bought things as an individual. You've never bought things through a company. So you understand what it means for an individual to buy things. So I would say, if you want to save yourself some like headache, find something that you can sell to a business and find the fastest way to make money. So like, for example, if you decide that you need to survive, you need $30,000 a year to survive, can you get $30,000 in the first three months or the first year. Like that should be the only thing you care about and you're going to and you're going to save time by charging more than you think you should and selling it to businesses. That's kind of what we got wrong in the beginning. I spoke earlier about strengths and weaknesses where you Fenton, you mentioned that really cool analogy. And I think the one of the things we often talk about is your biggest strength is often also your biggest weakness. And what I mean by that is that we are a team of engineers, and we were first launching SkillUp, our first business that we ended up selling. We spent six, seven months building this product, and then we just about to launch it, 6 p.m. in the evening, and I asked my younger brother to use the product, and he is a nature conservationist, so he's not engineering background, and he started using the product, and it was a total dog show. He didn't know what was going on. He was pressing buttons. He wasn't reading anything. It was a mess, and I sat there with my one co-founder, Andrew, and I said, what? on earth has just happened here and he that night we deleted like 40 percent of the code base and we launched it at two in the morning and it actually worked it was so obvious what he was doing and my brother's name was mike and we call that the mike test and everything we launch it has to go through the eyes of the mike test it used to actually go to him but now he's somewhere where there's no signal and you know what we learned there is that if any product it starts with you know an idea on paper it starts with like a design, it starts with a manufacturing, it starts with like assembly, then packaging, then delivery, then sales, then success. And the key thing we learned is to begin with the end in mind, start with sales and success and then build backwards. And we realized that we were a team of engineers, so we had this hammer and we just hit everything with this hammer. 
and it was our biggest strength, but it became our biggest weakness. And it's time and time again we keep falling into the trap. And your biggest strength can often be your biggest weakness. And what we did with SkillUp is we you know, knew how to use an Excel document. Oh, cool. So if we take 12% commission and then if we have 20,000 lessons every day, scroll to the right in five years, oh, we're going to be making so much money. But the reality is like, no, that's like a total trap. Your Excel document is your worst enemy in some time. Like your, your business finances, when you're starting, should be on one page of paper, the unit economics. You shouldn't worry about anything else. Get out of Excel. If you are an engineer and spending hours in Excel, you're doing something wrong. So you've been in the education space for a while and seen probably a lot of interesting business models. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the, the interesting or effective models you've seen? Yeah, definitely. Um, there's so many different types. I think the one that I'm very proud of is a South African company, a Cape Town company called Get Smarter. A few years ago, they were acquired by 2U. And Get Smarter, they sold like MIT courses and they sold these courses where a tutor or a course administrator would help the students get through the course. And you could do an MIT course for free online <laughs> or through something like Coursera. And you could buy a tutor on a per hourly rate, $10, $20, $30 per hour. But they were able to do this kind of one plus one equals three, where they were able to offer the same content that's technically free, tutors who were like there to help, and they were able to charge $2,000 for a 10 week course. And the way they were able to do that is they had a really good understanding of what, why people would pay for their course. And their purpose was make people stand out from the crowd. That's what they did. Their company was to make people stand out from the crowd. So you were applying for a job and it showed that you had an MIT certificate in machine learning from Get Smarter. And then all of a sudden you had a high chance of getting a job. You're making people make money. Like they had a very good understanding of that. So I think anywhere where I see a company that has like a really, really good understanding of their customers' decision-making process in education, I find really interesting. This sounds a little bit like hypocritical or, or kind of arrogant potentially to say, but I think I see more ed tech companies that are not sold on than the ones I am sold on. Like there's a lot of people who are reliant on grant funding. There's a lot of people whose unit economics, are there's far higher cost per acquisition. Their lifetime values are not long enough. It ultimately comes down to that. Their product isn't sticky enough. But, but there are some companies who are really getting it right. Speaking of grant funding and alternative ways to, to earn your income, we take it you have never relied on large outside investments and VC money. Is that correct? We did do a capital raise in 2017 for about, at the time, I think it was like $300,000. But we've been very fortunate to have broken even in the last three years and starting to kind of generate and fuel our own growth. So we kind of talk to the team as we say, guys, we're our next investor. You know, if we want to invest in something, we are the next investor. That being said, I do think there's value in VC funding. I just think it has to be very strategic. Could you elaborate on this? Like, how would you decide on accepting or not accepting VC money? Yeah, I think it comes down to something I learned from a mentor of ours is that you have to focus, if you're focusing on a rising tired industry, you've got to think a little bit differently. And what I mean by that is we, we, when we were first starting Code for Kids, we actually wanted to start a way to teach maths online. And I went to our mentor and I said, cool, we're going to make this cool tool that teaches maths online. And the mentor said, will the maths 
industry double in the next five years? And you very quickly need to know that the answer is no. The math, how much money people are spending on maths education is going to grow at 1% a year. Well, you know, thumbs up. It's certainly not going to grow. It's not going to hit double digits. And then I said, okay, fair. Then we said we're going to teach coding. And he said, interesting. Now, the coding industry might double in the next five years. And we've seen that to be true. It's like it's a rising tide. It lifts all the boats. Now, if something is lifting all the boats, you kind of want to be... <laughs> lifting a little bit faster than everyone. Now, at Code for Kids and Lesson Space, we could potentially have grown faster if we took more funding. Um, I think sometimes funding has the ability to make you focus on the wrong things and not get the product focused enough. And the way we kind of got around not trying to grow with VC funding is we've been extremely focused in the two products. And this is a detriment because we've had two product, two companies who have to be very focused. So, for example, at Lesson Space, we have the best small group tutoring whiteboard. So we do one to ten. We're not trying to do a hundred people on a lesson. We're not trying to do scheduling payments. We just live small group tutoring. That's us. So by being very very focused, you're getting the right customers. Code for Kids. We bridge a gap from game based from scratch to computer science. That's what we do. We're not trying to do scratch. We're not trying to do computer science. We just point to that. And so for that reason, I think we've been able to avoid funding or, or needing it, but I would also argue we probably could have gone faster with it. So there's definitely an argument to be made for both. It just depends on kind of what you want in your personal life, I suppose. So speaking of your personal life, Matthew, what is your dream? What do you dream of doing in the, in the realm of, in the world of education? Like, imagine it's your 80th birthday, you're looking back on your life, and you're like, okay, I'm happy that I did it. What's this one thing? Without a doubt, teacher training. The most important thing, I believe, is make teaching easier. That's the purpose of our, all of our companies, make teaching easier. I think if we can have an academy that is churning out the best quality teachers and putting them back in schools, that is what will change students' lives. So, teaching academies. That is such a great final question, and I think we should make that the final, final question. So, I think, I think Matthew, just to finish up, I just want to ask you if there's anything else you'd like to tell people that are, that are interested in doing what you're doing, which is essentially helping students have a better experience and, and learn more things thanks to to teaching and better prepared teachers. Is, is there any other advice you would give? Yeah, sure. One piece of advice, I don't know. I think the kind of things that I wish I thought about a bit more when I was younger or when I was starting it that I'm at least learning now and I'm sure in five years' time I would have thought something differently. But I definitely think it's important to think a bit longer term. Think about your business as a vehicle that's not going to just be around for a year or two years. It's going to be around for 10. <laughs> you know, businesses exist and like, Make sure that whatever it is that you're deciding this vehicle to do, it has to fuel you from a from a very objective financial perspective. You have to be able to survive. You don't want to be, you know, hating your life because of it. So focus on like how to make sure you for you to be the best version of yourself in education and do the really amazing things. Make sure you build a foundation of a really high quality, long term passion and vehicle that you're building. Start with how does this really help somebody's life? A lot of people are creating tools that they themselves would never use. Like, you must be the best user of your tool. We did that skill up, we used our online tutoring classroom, code for kids, I was teaching my nieces to code. Like, be the 
be the user first and make sure you love it. You have to love what the tool it is you're making. And then and then you can like kind of run as fast as you can with, with friends or people, you know, go with a group. I know that's not one piece of advice, but it's kind of my ending narrative, I suppose. Yeah, that's perfect. <clears throat> Matthew, thank you so much for generously sharing your time and your advice with us today. I have learned a lot just from being part of this conversation and I'm sure our listeners have as well. Thank you so much.